And so let's take and turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to look at the first five verses today in a message that I have entitled Unashamed. And so uh, why don't we rise to our feet, guys? Let's get on our feet, give you one last blast of that heart pumping. Hey, you got a heart on the back of your shirt. Man, I didn't even, that was perfect timing. She turned around, there it was. <laughs> Father God, you are good and you are greatly to be praised. And so to that end, Lord, we pray that you would help us just to honor you and be focused on you even in this time as we've set it aside to uh, learn of you, Lord. And so we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. You would equip us for the work of the ministry to which you have certainly called us to a time such as this. And so, God, you've put us in a certain culture. You've put us in a certain country. You've placed us within a certain context so that we might share the hope of the gospel with those around us. And so I pray, God, you would equip us and, again, embolden us to do just that. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Amen. Have a seat there. Last week's word ended, if you remember right, with a warning of judgment. And the principle in play essentially was this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Israel, there they were, refusing to uh, turn back to the Lord, to repent of their sin, uh, that of the idolatry, and trust in the Lord. Therefore, only the curse and reproach would remain. However, that didn't mean that God would take back his a promise of hope and restoration, they could still know the goodness of God, the restoration and reconciliation of God if they would just turn back to Him. It's the principle that snuck up there a second ago that's already in play, uh, the precious promise found in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or to finish our Eighth verse of the sixth chapter of the book of Galatians, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit, come on somebody, reap everlasting life. God gives us a choice. He wants us to choose Him. He even pleads with us to do so. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days. And it is a decision that we all have to make individually. But listen to me, it's also a decision that we make collectively as a nation before the Lord. And sin will bring its ramifications, but God is eager to provide reconciliation if we will just repent and return to Him. And so with that, let's turn our attention to, we're going to read all five verses here in chapter 44, and then we'll come back and look at it a little more um, individually, if you will. Yet here now, and go ahead, Jody, just pull me back just a couple more dB if you don't mind. Here now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty. 
floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring, and they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call himself by the name of Jacob, and another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and, the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now, last week, we took some time, developed to an extent, these principles that we find here in the very first verse, that if you're in Christ, it's not because you chose him, it's because he chose you. Now, of course, God is speaking to Israel here, and so the direct interpretation belongs to him, but easily demonstrable in the New Testament how there is application that belongs to you and me. Uh, We don't choose Jesus, he chooses us. Now, does that somehow interfere with your free will? No, not at all. God's election, God's choosing, listen to me, is predicated upon his, well, the word is foreknowledge. Listen, if you had the capacity of foreknowledge, would you choose to align yourself with those who would choose to love you and be loyal to you and stay true to you? Or would you pursue those who hate you, who take their stand against you and reject you? Now, if you're wise enough to choose those who would choose you, who would be loyal to you, who would love you with all their heart, with all their strength, with all their mind, with all their soul, how much wiser is the Lord? How much more will he utilize his foreknowledge to choose those who will love him? Now, in choosing those who would love you rather than those who would take their stand against you, Did that somehow interfere with their ability to choose? No, not at all. And so the Bible says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, perhaps you're wondering, How do I know if I've been chosen? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll discover that God chose you too. Well, you say, I don't want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then maybe God didn't choose you. But listen to me. Don't blame God if you choose to reject His offer of salvation by grace through faith in the person of His Son. But we also spoke of why God has chosen us, and it's there in verse 1 as well. It's that we might serve Him, that we might be witnesses to Him, testifying that He alone is God, that He alone can deliver, that He alone can save, that Jesus exclusively is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so I don't want to kind of jump back on those points, those principles that were in play last time. I want to draw your attention In this particular passage, well, it's found here in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, notice, underline it, who made you and formed you from the womb. Two thoughts to consider here. Number one, we note again the emphasis upon creation, not evolution. And number two, when does God consider pregnancy to be a person? When does life begin? 
I want to call your attention back here real quick to the fact that contrary to what's taught in many, if not all, public schools today, though I realize it's not necessarily taught as a settled science, taught nonetheless, you did not evolve. You are not the result of matter upon matter, random chance, and natural selection over the course of billions of years. Again, I say that if you evolve, then you really serve no purpose. I mean, there's no purpose in life. There's no purpose to life. There is no explanation for a moral conscience. It is all moral relativism. There is nothing wrong with might makes right if evolution is true. If evolution is true, then what makes Hitler or Lenin or Mao or Hamas or Hezbollah or any, what makes these people bad? I mean, how do you explain right and wrong or good versus evil? If you believe in evolution, you got to chalk these things up to natural selection. It's just the strong weeding out the weak so that we might evolve to a higher caliber or capacity or competency or whatever the case may be. What makes adultery wrong? Here's one that I hope sets on you real uneasy. What makes pedophilia wrong? What makes stealing wrong? I mean, if you have it and I can take it, why do we call that wrong? Evolution does not furnish those answers. The Word of God, however, does. You see, you have a moral conscience, intrinsic and intuitive understanding of right and wrong because God has created you. He has designed you in that capacity and with that functionality. The Lord has made you and formed you from the womb, okay? Guys, I think about it. How can anyone look upon and consider, guys, even moderately, the complexity the marvel of the human body and conclude there is no God, no divine designer. Every design mandates a designer. How can you consider the design of the human body and think there's no divine designer? It's all random process. It's all total luck of the draw. How often do we ever stop to consider even the delicate balance of life, what's involved in the simple task of living and breathing day to day? Think about the relationship between your breath and your bloodstream. I mean, the cells in our body need oxygen just to function. And they burn oxygen, kind of like a vehicle burns gasoline. And much like your vehicle gives off carbon dioxide as a result of burning fuel, your body will give off carbon dioxide as a result of burning the oxygen in the cells. And so there needs to be a way for your body to discharge the carbon dioxide while at the same time receiving a, a fresh supply of oxygen for the cells to continue to function. And so God has designed this whole fascinating system of the lungs and their ability to inhale, and we just happen to live and have an atmospheric condition of 78% nitrogen to 21% oxygen, there's traces of carbon dioxide and hydrogen, neon, and such in there. And your lungs can take this oxygen magically and mystically, kind of spread it throughout their perimeters, you see. Blood comes pumping in from the heart, discharging, depositing all the carbon dioxide that it's picked up along the way throughout the body as the cells have burned it off. The carbon dioxide is, again, uh, dropped off. 
and the blood picks up the oxygen that you just inhaled, goes back into the heart, gets pumped throughout your body, resupplying the cells with oxygen so they can continue to restore, regenerate, supply energy, or whatever they do. And you exhale the carbon dioxide that your bloodstream just swapped out for the oxygen. Now, you start exercising, those cells begin to burn more energy. And so what happens? You start breathing faster, uh, harder. Your heart starts beating with a greater intensity because it's got to keep those cells in supply. But you don't have to think, lungs, I need you to breathe faster. Heart, I need you to breathe or beat stronger. Those things occur, you don't even have to think about it. You know, it used to be that when you had surgery, the doctors would put you on bed rest for extensive periods of time. Now they try to get you up and get you moving as fast as they can because the more we can get that blood to flow, the faster the healing takes place. Well, isn't that interesting? What does the Bible say? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. But to think that this entire system just evolved through various mutations over time, random processes and chance. How ludicrous is that? And guys, we haven't even spoken about the reproductive system, the nervous system, the digestive system, the skeletal structure, how all the muscles knit it together, all, all in one body, every one of these systems working cohesively, independently, in unity, in one body. How do the eyes work? How, how do the ears translate waves of sound to some intelligible, communicative type uh, you know, that I can understand? How does the tongue form vowels and consonants? And you know, the, I, mean, the, I mean, we just talk about these kinds, of, we just take these things for granted. What am I trying to say? You are not an irrelevant outworking of evolution. You were fearfully and wonderfully, listen to me, made, okay? <laughs> God has created you. The psalmist said it this way, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Isn't that wonderful? And so that's number one. You did not evolve. You were made. You have a loving creator who formed your inward parts, who covered you in your mother's womb, who has, well, the Bible says, knit you together with bones and sinews. Which brings us to our second consideration. When is a pregnancy a person or a life? Well, you guys were kind of already ahead of me with that when I asked or proposed the question earlier, and understandably so. You guys know what your Bible teaches. But the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. If you have a soul, you have life. And God declares authority over, claims ownership of, 
every soul. Remember, we took the time a week or two ago to uh, develop this idea that as our creator, we are his by right. But this is what God has said. He says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who, notice it's a person, the soul who sins shall die. So, through this we can also conclude no soul, no sin. It's the soul that sins will surely die. So, for humanity to have life, there must be a soul. Now, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, this is important, my mother conceived me. And I like to point out that David wasn't saying that his mother was in sin, that meaning, you know, like in adultery or something, when he was conceived. What he's saying is that he came forth, I like to say, flawed from the factory, Uh, Because sin was present at the moment of conception. In sin, I was conceived. So sin was present at the moment of conception. Now, if sin was present, a soul was present. If a soul was present, there was life. Okay? And I just, I I feel like pastors in, in large regards are failing to teach their people the truth of what the Bible says. Perhaps you remember when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. Now, guys, she had conceived John at least six months prior to Mary conceiving our Lord. Now, I say that to say this. When Mary visited Elizabeth, even if Elizabeth was right on the edge of giving birth, Jesus was no more, I mean no more, than 12 weeks in the womb. But do you remember what happened? Luke tells us, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, notice, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Why such a a reaction from Elizabeth and the baby in her womb? I mean, was it due to the uh, indistinguishable cluster of, of cells in Mary's womb? Was it, was it because of a mass of tissue in Mary's womb? No. It was because there was a child inside of her, my Lord and yours. That was discernible even by the baby inside of Elizabeth. Listen, if before, and this is Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. If before you were formed in the womb, God knew you, how much more once you begin to form, once you are formed, listen to me, unborn children are children. For some reason, a lot of people feel better about abortion so long as it happens before 12 weeks. And the latest statistical data that's out there, at least readily available, is in 2020. But in 2020, according to an article that I read on the CDC's website, 
93.1% of all abortions took place before 13 weeks in 2020. Here's my question. Why is that a thing? I mean, do you magically become a person at week 13? And so as long as it's week 12 or before, we're okay with that? Ohio just passed a bill. And I, I promise this was not on my radar when I began to develop this study, but I didn't even know they were having the bill on there. That's to my shame, but they passed a bill this week enshrining the right to abortion up to uh, 24 weeks. That's six months. And these are people celebrating the right to legally murder an unwanted child. Guys, what has become, look at this, what has become of our nation? Surely we have lost our way. I mean, God help us. By the way, I mean, look at this. Look at this. This woman's down on her knees like, oh, glory to God. This is so unsettling to me. And the number of abortions reported in 2020, which was, again, the latest data that I could access in a reasonable amount of time, was over 620,000 in the United States in that year alone. Now, that, and that was actually down from the previous years. The total number of abortions in the United States since Roe versus Wade, nearly 64 million. 64 million. Does this nation have blood on its hands? Now, we thank God that last year the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. We celebrate that. Come on, don't we? All right, come on, guys. You stay with me here. But listen to me. It's the most basic right given to us by God, embedded in the founding document of our nation, known as the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What does self-evident mean? It means no one should have to explain this to you. It should be readily discernible. No, you know, any dummy should see this is what it means. Okay? We hold these truths, and I don't mean to call someone a dummy if they don't see it. I'm just saying that's what it means. Okay? It means it's self-evident. It shouldn't need explanation. That all men are, notice, created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are, what's the very first one on the list? Life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Guys, life is not some privilege we can choose to bestow predicated upon convenience under the banner of reproductive health care. It is the immutable, indisputable, unalienable right that's given to us by God. And every child in the womb has the right to life. The right not bestowed by man, but given by God to be born and to live. I don't even understand. I don't even understand the political position. And I think in Virginia, Yunkin was trying to do this, you know, this, this politician that says they're working harder to lower the abortion rate or to lower the number of abortions in America. You know, what he did was he tried to reach up and meet in the middle. He was like, well, what if we extend the right to abortion up to 15 weeks? That's the platform he was like, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. I don't want to see it. But what if I go along with it up to 15 weeks? That was his position, hoping to kind of get some, uh, what, what do we call, uh, undecided, independent voters on his, on his ticket and all. Listen, <laughs> is it just me or, 
If abortion is morally acceptable, then why bother to lower the rate? I mean, I want you to think about this. If it's morally acceptable, why bother to lower the rate? If abortion is not morally acceptable, then why do we allow it at all? People talk about protecting women's rights. I mean, who's protecting the rights of the innocent child? Just because you don't have to see their face doesn't mean they're less human. And guys, I'm well aware, okay? I want you to know of the possibility that there are some here today who have had an abortion. Or maybe you are a man here today and you have pressured your wife or your girlfriend to have an abortion. I'm going to tell you, though I know I don't need to, I know you already know, as honestly yet compassionately as I can, what you have done is called sin. But I also want you to know something that you may not be quite so sure of, but I want you to be really assured of, and that is that God loves you, okay? And that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and no different than any of the rest of us, forgiveness is found through repentance and at the foot of the cross. Healing and wholeness can be yours in Jesus Christ. Okay. Number one, we did not evolve. We were created. Number two, life begins at conception. And again, I just want you to, to rest assured, if, if you are one who has fallen prey and has had an abortion, listen, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things are made new, you are new. That is, your past does not define you. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. And God is here in verse 2 assuring Israel of his love for them. The fact that he will help them. He's made them. He's formed them in the womb. He's chosen them. By the way, this Jeshurun, it means the upright one. Uh, it's only found a few times in your Bible. Each time it's a reference to Israel. And again, this is a, how do we say, speaking of who you are in the light, ultimately, of the cross. I mean, you and me, we initially are all Jacob, metaphorically. I'm not saying that this is metaphorical. I'm saying that for the purposes of our application, we're all, the word Jacob means deceitful con man, right? Essentially, that's who we all are initially. B.C., as we like to say, before Christ changed us and gave us new life. But in Christ, by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you become the upright one. It's the marvel of God's mercy and grace. But back to God's help, look at verse 3. He says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and make himself and name himself by the name of Israel. God says, fear not. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, my blessing on your offspring. I, you know, listen, what a wonderful promise God gives to his people. 
God says to them, I'm not only going to give you my spirit. If he just said, I'm going to give you my spirit, that could mean a whole lot of things, couldn't it? But he says, I'm going to pour. That's an important word. I'm going to, the idea is that of lavishing upon uh, to cause an abundant overflow. I am going to just pour my spirit out upon you, my blessing on your descendants after you. Family, and we're not far from finished here. Allow me to point out a couple more things here just real quick. Number one, God wants to, again, the word is pour his spirit lavishly, copiously, abundantly upon you. I hope that encourages you. Now, we've mentioned this before. There is a prerequisite, and you need to see it in verse 3. You have to be thirsty. If you are not thirsty to see God do more, you are not thirsty to experience the Lord in a deeper way, then you probably won't. If you're like, eh, I'm fine, I might, you know, then odds are God has nothing more at this time for you. But should you get thirsty, come on now, should you find yourself longing for a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God, you're thirsting to be used in a greater way by God, then God will pour His Spirit out. He will take you deeper. He will do a wonderful work in your life. God is looking for, the words are there, dry ground. He's looking for dry ground for desperate people upon which to pour out His Spirit. And just for the record... We can't do anything apart from the work of His Spirit in our lives. You know, we're like ships on the ocean, sails raised, no wind. It's the Holy Spirit who fills our sails, who moves us along in our walk and in the works of God. We need, guys, we need the overwhelming outpouring of God's Spirit upon our lives. All the more as we think about the dark days to which God has called us to shine as a light. You and me, we have been called to a time such as this. And it's my heart for you that you will run the race to win, that you will finish well, that you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That you will receive, as Peter says, an abundant entry into the kingdom. I love the idea of that. Don't you love the idea of that? An abundant. I mean, you think about think about a parade. I mean, what do you want? Do you want a meager little like entry when you come in? The little party favors are sounding like, hey, you really did it. You know? <laughs> or do you want the erupting stadium of you know what I'm saying? That you might read, look what all that he's done for the glory, or all that she's done for the glory of God. Not for their name, not for their fame, but for the glory of God. They weren't serving themselves, they were serving the Lord. And it's just an abundant entry into the kingdom. You say, man, that sounds great, but I've got to be honest with you, Pastor, I'm not real thirsty. I mean, if I was to be honest completely. I want to be. How do, I, how do I get thirsty? Well, I think you could talk to any athlete about that. We, we made mention of it earlier. You start expending energy 
your heart starts pumping. Your lungs start huffing. Your body starts sweating. Dehydrating, guess what that does? It creates thirst. Oh, the marvels of evolution. (laughs) Insert clown face and face palm emoji here, which I actually did on my notes. (laughs) What am I saying? Get out there and get busy serving, ministering, sharing, loving, witnessing, giving people the gospel. Expend that spiritual energy, and I guarantee you, you'll start thirsting for more. Now, as it pertains to this particular outpouring that we're reading of here, we know from Acts chapter 2, this was fulfilled in part on the day of Pentecost. You remember Peter was quoting out of Joel chapter 2, speaking of the pouring out of God's Spirit in in just this fashion. Now, in my mind, uh, what Peter was describing was more of a foreshadowing there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost because the entire passage found in Joel chapter 2 was not fulfilled then. Now, it will be during the great tribulation when God pours his spirit out upon the entire nation of Israel and all of Israel will be saved and they will be preaching the gospel and there will be a, a, an awakening unparalleled in human history in that time. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that the promise of God's spirit doesn't just speak to some future time prophetically, it's also for you and me right now presently. This is where you just write it down so you can read it later. It's John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit in an overwhelming, outpouring capacity to all who would come to him and drink. Again, you have to be thirsty. If any man thirsts, Jesus said, and you've got to come to Christ. Let him come to me and drink. Listen, having people pray for you is fantastic. But you need to come to Jesus personally, volitionally, willfully of your own choice. And it's the best thing that you could do, not only for yourself. How many parents do we have here? Come on, raise your hand if you're a parent. Wow, that's a good chunk of you. The best thing that you can do for your children. God says here, I will pour out my spirit, or I will pour my spirit out upon you and my blessing on your offspring. The best thing you can do for your children, or the children you will one day have, is live your life set apart to Jesus Christ. Believe me, it will serve as a blessing, not only to you personally, but to them who come after you and your family. God will see to it. Guys, I want my kids, my grandkids, to see the priority that Christ has in my life. I I want them to, to recognize my desperate need for God's spirit and his grace and his mercy and his... I want them to see his faithfulness to me because guess what? They'll have difficult days as well. And we've been called, as I just mentioned, to shine as a light in an incredibly dark world. And if it will, if God will bless them through my desperation for Him, hey man, sign me up. 
It pains my heart to see how irresponsible that we as adults can be in not taking the spiritual development of our children to heart. To think, ah, they know about God. I mean, I think. That's probably good enough. God has entrusted these precious lives, these eternal souls to us. I mean, as though God were pleading through me, don't take that lightly. Let's look at verse 5, and then we'll move here toward our close, okay? Verse 5, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This is the result of the outpouring of his spirit. Translation, when verse 4, or pardon me, yeah, uh, yeah verse, no, verse uh, 3 takes place. Verse 4 and 5 will be the result. When God pours his spirit out upon you, you will be unashamed to be His. That's what this is saying. To say, I am the Lord's. Unashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. When God has poured His Spirit out upon you, you want others to come to the same saving knowledge of God. It's the second thing that I wanted you to see. And listen... People are all about identity these days. Uh, One will identify as this. Another will identify as that. These are my pronouns and all the rest. And, And they're trying to find their identity. And it's tragic because it's a sure sign that they're confused and struggling and looking for hope and Something to give them a sense of meaning and value and purpose. Yet the Bible says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means Jesus Christ is your identity. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and given himself for me. Now we're going to close. I don't know where our our closer is or who our closer is. Who's our closer? There you are, Karen. Thank you. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, you want to take the name of the Lord. You want everyone to know that you belong to Him and that He belongs to you. I am yours and you are mine. I am the Lord's, you see. And I suppose that's what I'd leave you with today. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? If you don't, you can believe on Him today. You'll discover that God has chosen you from the foundations of the earth. If you do belong to Him, I suppose the question I'd leave you with is this. Do you desire more? 
Are you desperate? Dry? Thirsty for a greater walk? A deeper relationship with Jesus? Guys, we want to bow our hearts before Him and ask that He would just pour out His Spirit upon us even now. God, teach us what it means to be thirsty for you. God, we desire more. I know, God, that for so many of us, what what needs to happen to receive more of you is that there would be less of us. In the words of your servant, John, I must decrease that you might increase so Lord teach us what it means to to crucify the flesh along with its passions and desires we want to know you we want to serve you we want to bring honor and glory to you but we can do nothing oh God without you and so we're asking you pour your spirit out oh God lavishly overwhelmingly abundantly and continuously. Not for our gain, God, but for your glory, that you would be glorified in our lives. And I would just say that while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if today is a day of salvation for you, what a wonderful thing. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus who paid the price for your sin that you might have life in Him. Because that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter what you've done. There is no sin so atrocious, so outlandish, so immoral, that you can't find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's each and every one of us before he has redeemed us for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so if, if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart today and you're saying, you know what, I need Christ to, to come into my life, to make me new, to do all this that you're speaking of, preacher, well then great, let's pray for you. I'd ask you to raise your hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so and you can put it back down. But I want to give you a second to say, you know what? This moment right here, right now is for me. I don't know if it's for anyone else, but I know it's for me. If you're bold enough to, to say that, just raise your hand where you're at. And if I see your hand, I'll just say, God bless you. I see you there. God bless you too. God bless you too. I see you. Anyone else? I mean, you know, it takes courage. I won't lie. It takes courage to confess your need, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I'm so glad that Jesus had the courage to go to the cross for you and for me. Anyone else? Okay. Well, listen, I've already said it. The Bible tells us that we all sin and fall short of His glory. That means we don't, we don't meet the mark. We don't rise to the standard. We sin but we're so grateful as we mentioned in the kind of the introductory remarks of our time that if we confess our sin 
He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I love the word all. Pay attention when you see it. Not most of it, not the lion's share of it, not just the really kind of, uh, you know, understandable parts of it, all of it. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our sin from us. You guys hear me say occasionally, I love that because north to the south is a measurable distance. You go north so far, eventually you start going south. You head east, you're never going to find the West Pole. You're just going to go forever and ever and ever. It's gone. And so just come before Him. Thank Him for it. Confess who you are and receive Him. Believe upon Him today. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm here and I believe on You now with all that I can. From the deepest part of who I am, Lord, I believe in You. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin. Lord, that you would make my heart your home. That you would find your throne upon my heart. That you would be the Lord of my life. You see, God, I would ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Right here, right now. And make me new. And thank you, Lord, for putting my name in your book of life. I want you to know that if you prayed something like that, that God hears the cry of your heart. He sees your heart turning from sin to believing on him. And the Bible is clear that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I want you to be assured of that and rest in that today. And Father, for those who are thirsting for more, I'm asking that as we leave this place that we be different than we walked in, that when we uh, take that step out, that it's, it's that sense of, okay, God, what do you have for me? I want to be obedient to you. I want to bring honor and glory to you. Fill me, God. Pour your spirit out upon me, God. Teach me obedience to your word. God, may that be the cry of our heart. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.